Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come? What does that mean? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? What exactly are we praying for? And what exactly am I supposed to do about God's kingdom on earth? Here, now. How should we as Christians relate to the culture around us? Retreat? Attack? Convert? Create? Avoid? Control? Redeem it? Condemn it? This is Kingdom Come, a faith and culture podcast series. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome, everyone, to uh, a, a new podcast series. Actually, the first episode in this whole series where we're, we're asking the question, what does it mean to pray thy kingdom come? Jesus teaches us to pray this, and I think sometimes there's the view of prayer that that, well, we're praying for something and we're expecting God to come through for it. But there's also the idea that when we pray something, we're on the hook for the application of the thing that we're praying. And so, for instance, thy will be done, among other things, has to mean that I'm about the business of doing God's will within the domains I, I occupy. And so, thy kingdom come. Is the kingdom simply something out there that we're waiting on, or is the kingdom something that ought to be brought to fruition in our lives at micro levels and even at macro levels? How, what does it mean for Christians to strive for the kingdom today while we wait on the kingdom to come, if, if that makes sense? And so, so is, do you think the subsequent line from the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven is an elaboration on the con on the on the comment thy kingdom come or is it a completely different thing well i mean i i think it's elaboration yeah i don't know how to interpret if someone just prayed heavenly father on earth as it is in heaven amen well <laughs> i don't know, know how to i don't know how to take that yeah you know? um yeah exactly but but i i mean I'm spitballing here. Um, yeah. But um, I think that um, the kingdom's talked about it in multiple ways mm-hmm. and in multiple contexts. But I think at a minimum, it has to do with God's reign manifesting itself in his will being done in the world. And in the same way or in sense in which it's actually done in heaven. So it sort of implies that what's going on around here is not quite up to scratch, yeah. you know, as it compares to what's going on in heaven and particularly in regards to God's will being done. And so Jesus prayer, as I understand it is that in the world at some point, uh, God's will will be done in the same way it's going on in heaven. And I guess at some level, that means his reign is complete or yeah. substantial, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, in the here and now, when you know we become new creations in Christ, we begin living out kingdom principles um, in, in our lives. And I think what's perishable is being readied to become imperishables through uh, the sanctification that believers are going through. 
So I think there's kingdom work going on in our lives and, and that we can even inject into society, which we'll get into later. But mm-hmm. um, so I, I think kingdom come is both a, uh, uh, a now and not yet, if that's maybe a good way well, to describe yeah, it. Ab- oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of God is... Uh, the actual language that he uses is the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Mm-hmm. And so some people translate that into our English translations as the kingdom of God is within you, in your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not exactly clear that that's what he meant, but it's likely that he was talking about the kingdom of God coming to fruition within each of us who embrace Jesus. And so, um, <sighs> What is the Sermon on the Mount if not sort of a blueprint for kingdom ethics? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the way that we love our neighbors, the way that we, um, uh, you know, appeal to the Lord, um, the way that we pray, the way we paint our church on the outside, the way we paint our church on the outside. You know, <laughs> that's a little known part of the yeah. Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. I mean, that's going deep, yeah. but I mean, I just, it's just an example. But. It's a textual variant. It's not always included <laughs> right. in the English right. translations, but it's the. Color of the carpet is part of that as well. <laughs> Color so, of the carpet is in the Gospel of Thomas, and we don't read the Gospel of Thomas. All kingdom right. principles, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, oh, hey, by the way, we f- we failed to mention um, Kyle Wisdom is still not with us. Uh, he's he's at home with his baby. He's alive. No, long, no longer with us. <laughs> he's alive, y'all. He's, he's still <laughs> not with us. Not no longer with us. Uh, yeah. So Kyle is Kyle's away. He's off doing. Um, he's on dad duty today so anyway jeremy has kindly stepped in to fill that fill that gap for us we appreciate it so jeremy if you could just talk Small. talk try to emulate kyle's voice when you yeah. talk just to, i'd like to hear it I, that, that's <laughs> that would be worth hearing i'm glad yeah, that would be hilarious to try I'm glad put that, one put I'm, one over on man, all the listeners to yeah, this. Like, i'm really know. i'm really glad that wasn't a prerequisite yeah so I'm um, trying to put it over on everybody. That, 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 <laughs> pretend like this is Kyle over here. We're not going to tell anybody he's out. So, so let me let me say this. One of the cool things about this podcast group, if I do say so myself as a contributor, um, is that we've got sort of a, a generational separation of contributors here. Um, you know, from the younger domain of of Kyle and and his generation. All the way up through the very, very, very old, um, you know, and the ancients, yeah, and my father's, you know, contribution to this podcast. So, but each of us, I think, have a, a unique vantage point or perspective on how the times have changed. Some of us may, have, you know, may have seen more of the cultural drift away from a consensus on Christian ideals. Um, some of us may have seen less. I've talked to some of the younger generation who, uh, this, the, the sense of urgency in the older generations to preserve something they feel like they're losing just isn't there in in the younger generation. They feel like they never had it. The the younger generation, their sense of the the times is that, well, we never were a Christian nation. We never had a Christian society. The older generation tends to, to view things differently, they feel the the poignancy of the loss of the transition in the times. And so I, I'd kind of like to hear from each of us, if, if we can, how have you experienced the transition from a, um, a, a greater sort of majority consensus on Christian norms and ideals to where we sit today? 
how has that happened in your life and how do you see that playing out today? Well, I mean, I, I had the, I guess I would call it the blessing of growing up in a, with a strong Christian heritage within my family, grandparents that, um, and you're pretty old. You're, yeah, I mean, I'm Aragorn's age, somewhere in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was in his 80s, yeah. by the way. <laughs> I know, we didn't look at it. Yeah. <laughs> he aged well. No, I, I'm so thankful that I had the heritage that, I, that I've had. Um, and so I, I was always ex- surrounded by, exposed to um, convictions based on Scripture, uh, morals that were defined for us by Scripture. Um. So as my grandparents have passed, you know, in years past, um, and then my own parents were faithful to bring us to church and and teach us. Um, so I guess what I what I sense where I sit today is, um, I have a strong memory of those values that were held and and were instilled in me, and and more so through the Spirit's work in me after coming to Christ, but, um. What I see in the world today is just to your uh, your comment earlier about I see many around me today they have nothing to attach themselves to from the past that even symbolizes that kind of foundation um, for the Christian um, moral or ethic that Scripture calls us to live by, and so I I guess in some a lot of ways, and I guess every believer would say this maybe, but from what I've seen that was instilled from my own family, like the baton has been passed to me. I need to keep fighting for this to, to put it in front of my own children, like go after this, chase after this and hold tight to it because it matters. Um, even if those around you, this is completely foreign to them, understand that it, that it matters. And, and there's a, a reason that uh, the Lord has us to pass the faith down to our children and teach mm-hmm. them, you know, as scripture teaches us. Mm-hmm. So I see it as a, hey, next up, you know, kind yeah. of thing. Don't 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 fall out of your lane or, or drop out of the race here. Keep keep running and represent. I I sort of lived through the cultural transition that's happened since the '60s. Uh, my first memory, actually, probably one of my earliest memories, was the day John Kennedy was shot. And um, I myself remember that day because that's the day I learned to blow a bubble <laughs> with chewing gum. <laughs> I can remember sitting in front of my grandmother's TV with all the adults glued to the TV, and I sat there on the carpet in front of the TV blowing bubbles. <laughs> you know, that's kind of what I remember about that day. So I was sentient and paying attention to the world around me in the late 60s and early 70s, early adolescent, early 70s. Me. From my perspective, it was hard to uh, miss the social and moral upheaval of those times. Um, the um, the rejection of um, any sense of piety or obligation to your forebears, and the celebration of that sort of liberation from any received wisdom in areas of morality, particularly in areas of sexuality, but even in terms of, um, you know, 
um, the, the way you treated your body and your mind. And you can see there's just been kind of a continuous progression of um, con- a search for ever-increasing levels of material and physical gratification. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I, I do think there was a wider, um, spread shared value system Mm -hmm. between families, uh, in my childhood. I mean, I'm, I'm in a weird situation because I'm sort of on my third set of children. You know, we had you and your brother and then there was a big gap. And then we adopted your sisters, and then there was a really big gap. And now I'm raising a one of a your third grader again. So I've been in 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 the school system, and I've seen been in educational settings with um, parents in the '80s, parents in the two, early 2000s, and parents now in the 2020s. It's a very different thing. Every one mm-hmm. of those, I I can see a a shift in. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a a reduction in shared values from home to home. Um, it's it's more. I wouldn't say it's not social estrangement in the sense that everyone can go to the school events and enjoy all the kids, particularly as they're little. But um, you're you're much more reluctant to assume that. Um, what's going on in those homes, what children are being exposed to in those homes is the kind of thing that you would be comfortable mm-hmm. with and approve of. It's just, there's a wide variance in moral commitments and child-rearing mm-hmm. expectations. Well, uh, I w- my phone recommended to me this morning a podcast and I think my phone probably knows best so I I took my phone's recommendation and listened started listening to this this podcast by uh, conversations with John Anderson I think is the way it's called as the title of the podcast series I've subscribed to it but I rarely ever find time to tune in but this morning I did because it was recommended there was the, the the guy contributing to the conversation on the other side with John Anderson was a guy named James Orr who's um, kind of an important guy. Uh, I think he's in the School of Divinity at Cambridge, I want to say, or is it Oxford? Anyway, somewhere over there in, in England in one of those nice sounding colleges. Anyway, so he's um, he made the statement, John Orr did, that really one of the pivotal shifts in our time was a shift from the world of sin to the world of syndrome, uh, where where sin, or the, in, within the religious world of sin, uh, things like blame, culpability, accountability, and justice exist. Within the world of syndrome, where sins become syndromes, um, really the medical world takes over. It's something that needs to be treated, something that's therapeutic, something that needs... And he says that shift from sin to syndrome is one of the greatest shifts that we've seen. And so he sort of rejects this whole idea of mental health, for instance, um, because it, the whole idea of mental health, he says, um, it's, it's, like, it's like the psychiatric community has pulled one over on the world, that they have actually solved the mind-body conundrum. Um, right. And he says, but we haven't. We haven't done that. And, and 
and the whole language of mental health sort of presupposes that we have done that, that that the solutions to uh, immaterial struggle are material solutions like pills, the same way we would treat body It, body it also presupposes that sin is not volitional. And that sin is not volitional. And so what he actually, one of the points he makes is that within a, the religious landscape, the language of sin, the language of blame and punishment is hard on the ears today. It doesn't, it doesn't sit well with modern audiences or, or, or uh, cultures. He said, however, it's necessary for the establishment of freedom because only sin is kind of, <laughs> it is counterintuitive to Christian ears to say that the concept of sin actually leads to human freedom, that sin is necessary for freedom. But if you are, if your choices are the product of a syndrome, then you are a slave to your impulses. But if the cho- choices you make are a result of sin, then you are a, a free agent acting out those choices yourself. That also has ramifications on justice. But um, all, all that to say, there, that, that shift took place kind of back the 40s, 50s, 60s. We see that shift from uh, kind of a religious landscape where people thought of sin and spoke of sin openly and accountability and to the world of over-psychologized interior life. And I think it paralleled this search, this quest for um, greater comfort and pleasure materially and internally. Um, When we saw that take place, I I think there was something that died in, what would you call, is it the social imagination um, that, that Truman... Uh, imaginarium, social imaginary. That- yeah, he talked about the imaginary or the imaginarium. Yeah, yeah. Where, like, the the way that we as a society kind of view the world collectively, we tend now to view the world, even Christians, in a psychological through a psychological paradigm rather than a theological paradigm. And so, I think you see this playing out in the way that even Christians today worship God. It's very psychological in our approach to worship. It's very therapeutic, our approach to preaching. Um, and, and so, that, that shift, according to Orr, James Orr, was, was huge. And I, I think a lot of the younger generation never grew up within a world where there was a shared social imaginary uh, sort of a shared consensus that 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 fully embraced religious constructs like sin and righteousness and justice and accountability, and even just agency. Frankly, agency. I mean, right, right. You know, there's a, there's one of my favorite essayists is a guy named Anthony Daniels. He writes under the pseudonym um, Theodore Dalrymple, and he was being interviewed by the guys on a podcast called Trigonometry, which they do a lot of interesting things on that podcast. I don't always recommend it because they inter- interview some kind of, um, oh, salty people, let's say. Um, but, um, but they were interviewing him and they asked him the question, uh, what is the root cause of crime? Well, you know, the culture is going to give a lot of answers to that, right? The culture is going to say, well, poverty, that's going to be the most common response you get. But it, whatever response you get, people are going to say the root cause of crime has some environmental primary influence, right? Uh, his answer was provocative and subversive, and that's one of the things I love about him. He said, the root cause of crime 
is the decision to commit it. So he he sort of presupposes a volitional moral agency. moral agency on the part of the doer, and that he's not he's not up for sloughing this off onto environment or mental you know mental health or you know hormones or or anything else. It's a choice that people well, are making. So that is a very old world way of thinking. I don't know if he's religious or not. You may know. I don't if think he he's is. Christian. Right. <clears throat> he's, but he is, it's interesting, he's had either the good or bad fortune, depending on how you want to look at it, of working closely uh, among uh, the prison population and the underclass in Britain for 40 years. He's a psychiatrist, a medical doctor, who, and he... He does. He has very counter-cultural views about psychiatry. He he basically fully embraces the whole idea of human agency, and that people choose make make their choices. Yeah. You know? So when we stop talking about sin, lo and behold, mo- the moral fabric of society is rent asunder. Right. Um. And we, we, and we and we've seen that since the '60s, when really so much of the 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 public dialogue became psychologized and our view of the self became so internal, internally psychologized. And, and uh, Carl Truman speaks to this in his rise and triumph of the modern self. That, that book is awesome. And what was the, what was the popular version the, called? The world. Um, uh, something about uh, which one? Uh, Carl Truman's book. We did, we did a series. strange new world. Strange new, new world, world was yeah. the popularized version of that a rise and triumph of the modern self. It's the same book, but it was just sort of abridged and, and condensed for for easier and more accessible reading so um but that's one of the points that he makes is this shift to the psychologized self has resulted in so many ways in the moral landscape that we find today pleasure and um interior happiness being sort of taking over the throne as the as the ruling virtue of human pursuit mm-hmm. um and so as Christians, the way that we view the world obviously has an impact on the path that we see forward. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, in some ways, when we think about how as Christians to redeem the, the times, I think if, if on the whole the problem is an interior problem, then the solution is an interior solution. If, if it's an exterior problem, if you view sort of the, I don't know, the, the greatest benefit of, of, of Christian impact on society being moral constraints, then maybe you just try to legislate morality, and, and that's your path forward, you know. But, but you see there's, there's sort of a, there, there's a, there, there's a conundrum here for Christians in the modern age, not least of which... It has to do with the fact that the younger generations and the older generations are sort of viewing things very different ways, and we're talking past each other because they're they've grown up in that psychologized world, whereas a lot of the older generation, I think, if you're under the age of probably thirty eight, you you're you grew up in an almost an exclusively psychologized world. Well, I mean, I I'd spend some time talking to young people. I have a lot of young people who work for me, but also just. Among the Christian community, I I talk to people, and it's there is a such an elevated sensitivity to not disturbing anyone's feelings uh, among people, you know, 
below 40 uh at least maybe maybe more than that and um at at one level you can sort of understand that and appreciate the concern um i i don't think we should gratuitously uh disturb people's feelings right <laughs> yeah. um just to be a crank but at the same time uh you know i've told this story before i sat in a doctor's office on christmas eve in 19 19- 80 um and the doctor came in and um had to deliver some very bad news to me that resulted in me being in the hospital having open heart surgery as a 20 year old a few weeks later uh and then i remember him barking at his nurse assistant he turned to her and he said who schedules me with new patients on christmas eve you know and um it wasn't easy for him to deliver bad news and it certainly wasn't easy for me to get it. And I didn't feel good. He disturbed my feelings. Mm -hmm. Right. But what is better to tell someone the truth that may be disturbing or is it better to assuage their feelings and create a false sense of uh, satisfaction? Yeah. So that's what it really, I mean, from, from my vantage point, it's all about what's true, mm-hmm. but f- at some level, for some people, it's all about the feels. Yeah. So know? then, niceness becomes right. being kind, being nice, right? You know, helping people stay happy, feeling good about themselves. Um, whereas the old world view of sin and righteousness, it, it was sort of assumed everyone needs to grow up. Everyone's got things they have to work on, and so. Let me ask a question. This is a thought experiment, okay? And I, I, I kind of warned you guys that I might ask a question like this, so here goes. Let's just say that you and a hundred of your best friends <laughs> all landed on an undiscovered landmass, and you were tasked with setting up a society. There was no existing government. There was no law and order. It was just you and a hundred people and you're going to form some kind of a settlement. Uh, obviously this sort of harkens back to the, you know, pilgrim days and the settling of, of the West. But, um, but let's say that happened today and you were on that, you were in that group and you were supposed to do this. What kind of society would you set up? How would your faith inform the way that you went about establishing a civilization? Would it be a liberal society in which all faiths are tolerated and we, you know, tolerance was sort of the uh, name of the game? Or would it be a Christian society in which Christian virtues were enforced? Uh, the Sabbath was a non-negotiable. Well, oh, are these hundred friends all believers? Yeah, sure then, yeah, it's Christian straight up, no questions asked, and all restaurants are buffet. <clears throat> okay, but what if... <laughs> <laughs> right. <You know. laughs> but what if, they, what if they weren't? Let's play it both, yeah. let's play both sides. Okay. So let's say, that, let's say that half of them are Muslim. Mm-hmm. By the way, I can tell you what the Muslims would, would do. Mm-hmm. So um, I think one of the prophets uh, said this, it might have been Jeremiah, I can't remember, 
uh, said truth died in the streets and there was no justice. Hmm. Um, the, I tell the guys that work for me this, that the pursuit of excellence is indistinguishable from the pursuit of truth. And any excellent society has to be based on truth. Um, illusion leads to um, brittle fragility and disaster. And so I, I think we're what, what's happening right now is we're building our society. We're trying to build our society on an illusion. I mean, it, the, yeah. it, we're, we're becoming a parody of an illusion almost. And when you look at what's going on with transgenderism and, and some of that, but... And when um, you say we, you're talking about what we're actually doing, not the hypothetical society. Right, not the I hypothetical. Just, right. But I think a hi- in a hypothetical society, um, justice, if, you know, we, we hear a lot of people talking about they want justice. Well, if you want justice, you better embrace truth. And so I think you would, I think I would build a society based on truth. And that's not just... Uh, it, it's based on biological truth, on physical truth, on material truth, on spiritual truth, on moral truth. I mean, you, you cannot have a just and thriving society, ultimately, that's based on anything else. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I, I would unapolog- unapologetically, I mean, if, to the extent it was dependent on me and I had the obligation to make the choices, I would absolutely choose truth-based uh, principles. Yeah, so I think the uh, illustration of building a, a structure probably is, is apt here, because if, you, if the foundation of the structure you're building has a critical flaw, then the whole structure will crumble eventually. Yeah. So if you begin with an illusion, if you begin, if you build your whole structure on the foundation of something that isn't fully true or isn't sound, then it will all crumble. This is one of um, uh, Philip, uh, what's his name? He wrote The Rape of Man and Nature. Um, Reef? I can't remember. No. Uh, any, anyhow, he, he, uh, this is one of his insights on how modern truth claims rest solely on, an, uh, on, on a faulty foundation of scientism. The claims that, were, that science makes, for instance, about the nature of the world simply aren't true not even from a Christian perspective. They sound truthful because they have some aspect of truth tied to it, but they're not fully true. And so the, 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 the world that's being built upon scientific assumptions is destined to fall apart because it's not rooted in ultimate truth. And so in some sense, whatever society you built, if it's a secular society, then, this, then, then that society—I guess I'm asking the question— is that society, whatever secular or liberal society you build, one based on tolerance and sort of coexistence, is that sort of society destined to fall apart, destined to erode eventually, because the foundation itself isn't rooted in ultimate reality? As, as we perceive it, there is one God, yeah. and he's Father, Son, and Spirit, and he, or, he orders the cosmos in a very particular way. Yeah, it's like Jesus said, in the, ho- the house built on the rock, when the storms come, it stands, but the one built on sand, it falls apart, right? It's mm-hmm. destroyed. So I think that's true of a society that's built on shifting sand and has no rock for its foundation, which would be the Lord himself and the truth that he gives us. So, yeah, anything that's not rooted in truth will fall. You know, it, 
it could be that what we're what we're experiencing in our time in the West, in the modern West, there's this really sort of cataclysmic shift that's taking place in history. Um, and there are some people who are way more onto this than I will ever be. I'm only sort of seeing uh, the smoke from a distance. Some people are dealing with the fire, you know, itself. Um, but, you know, until very recently in modern history, there really hasn't been a nation that didn't have some unifying mythology or religion that that carried it forward and that served as its identity and and um, and 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 as the seedbed for its own concept of justice. You know, really, the modern West and this sort of sec- secular, uh, liberal quasi-atheist or agnostic view on God, trying to build a society on commerce rather than religion and mythology, for instance, is a modern experiment that may be crumbling around us uh, as we speak. Yeah, if you have no shared transcendent commitments of any kind, then, um, like Mr. Darcy, what or not Mr. Darcy, but Mr. Bennett, what do we live for but to make sport of our neighbors? Yeah, to make sport and, for our neighbors. And, and laugh at them in our turn, you know. Um, I mean, there, you, you exist for a reason. You, you, a culture and a society exists for a reason. If there's a culture, cult, it comes from the root cult, which implies a set of shared endeavors and shared purposes. And uh, we're trying to, uh, in trying to build a, a culture based on extreme individualism, we're trying to build a culture based on no shared endeavors, mm-hmm. on the absence of shared values and shared commitments and shared purposes. And um, so, <clears throat> one of the it seems like it's anti truth. One of the weird issues that that I think lands at the center of this whole discussion for Christians is the is the issue of immigration. So, both all over the West, whether you're in Europe or if you're in the if if you're in North America, the question of immigration is kind of at the center of any national identity. Um, from the very beginning of the United States history, there was there were very grave concerns about who was allowed to immigrate here and who wasn't. Um, and that sounds kind of exclusive and, you know, well, the, well, in modern parlance, that would be called racist, right? <laughs> You're racist. Um, but, or purist or something like that. But really their concern was this understanding that a nation has no self-identity if there's no shared mythology, if there's no shared sort of social imaginary view of the world. And when, when too many varying uh, entities invade one area and try to occupy it as a nation, it crumbles. There's infighting. There's, there's no, there's no community at all. Um, there's just, there's just infighting. There's, you know, and so it devolves into chaos. That was their concern. They wanted to form a nation. And, and so I think we can understand there's some wisdom in that. We do this at church, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's boundaries around who can join Lake Ridge Bible Church and you have to believe certain things. Um, and if you don't believe those things, then you're not welcome to join our church. You can come on Sunday and sit in the back and listen, you know, mm-hmm. sit in the front and listen for that matter. Um, but but you can't become a member here and have voting interest in the church or or roles of leadership and accountability. 
unless you say you believe certain things, right? So well, we get that. I mean, you see this, right? I mean, um, all over the West since October 7th, there are thousands taking to the streets mm-hmm. celebrating the rape and dismemberment of children in Israel, southern Israel. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's a special kind of myopia. Yeah. Not that it requires a special kind of myopia not to ask yourself, um, what does this mean for any notion of shared commitments in these countries? I mean, it seems uh, that I'm not quite sure how to say this. It, you know, you're living side by side with genocidal monsters. Mm-hmm. That's in the West, mm-hmm. not just in, you know, some dark hole in the desert, you know, in North Africa or something. Douglas you know? Murray's been kind of raked <clears throat> over the coals recently because he said that, you know, some of, we know that some of Hamas's top brass, top leadership are living very comfortably in London. Mm-hmm. They have very comfortable livings, very safe, comfortable. Li- they're, so they're able to seek refuge in that secular tolerant mm-hmm. society um, and not be forced to um, give account for their beliefs and their actions. And so that sense of here and again, this is where when we move from that world of sin to syndrome and everything becomes internalized and psychologized, there's this leveling at the individual level of, of, of the issues. No one, can, no one should be told what they ought to believe or what they should think about something. It's all your truth versus my truth, and so then, therefore, there is no truth. Yeah, and that's when, you know, when Scripture says everyone for Israel did what was right in their own eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, and they had no king to truly lead. Right. It was chaos. Mm-hmm. It was destruction. So, yeah. And, and for Christians, this, this question of immigration is boiled down to, so it's kind of funny because on the one hand, we would all say, yes, keep the borders up at Lake Ridge. Don't let the barbarian heathens in as members who will co- corrupt our documents, who will, you know, all that kind of stuff. We would get that. But we show grace. I mean, Jeremy's here. It's true. That's you know, true. So. Fair point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, when it comes to our national borders, there's a lot of Christians saying, let everyone in. Who wants mm-hmm. to come in? Our obligation is simply to welcome and love. And and and, and so I, I think there's sort of a, we want our, I don't. It, it's interesting how our liberal leadership has has told those that live on the border states, just let them in. It's the American thing to do. And now that they're being bused to their doorsteps, their their attitude and opinions have changed on this. They, they don't like it so much when now you're having to deal with the issue. Right. And and now you want to take action of some sort. Don't know what that's going to look like. I to remedy the problem because it's affecting you now. And so it's easy to give commands and bark orders at people whenever you're not really having to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Same for these Hamas leaders that live in London. Mm-hmm. You know, why don't you put yourself out there where all this war is going on instead of telling people, you know. Yeah, I was watching a, this weekend, I was watching a podcast, um, and, and they were talking about this, if you go back 100 years in America, <clears throat> this whole immigration discussion, um, 100 years ago, the encouragement and the narrative was, come to America, you come and you assimilate mm-hmm. to an American lifestyle, to a certain way of life, a certain belief system, and a certain understanding, and which we've seen last seen now over the last... 40 years 
is this this change in the narrative of now it's well come come to America just as you are stay as you are bring your culture here bring your thing and 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 there's a, there's a part of me that says yeah sure there's maybe there's not you know this is America right? because what America because is, what America is is, is a melting commercial pot. opportunity right, right? it's, That's it's really... a melting pot of things right but what we're seeing is the the almost kind of that drop in that in 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 that lifestyle in that in that cultural mm-hmm. um as you were talking about earlier that that shared purpose that shared mm-hmm. understanding of this is what it means to be an american this is what it means to be here or to be serving or, you know to living under a certain shared purpose mm-hmm. um we're losing that yeah right it was an interesting it, i hadn't i hadn't really thought about it at that point um even from going back, you know, two or three generations from my grandparents, mm-hmm. you know, generation and their culture they lived in um, was a completely different mindset yeah. um, than what we're seeing today. Yeah, many don't immigrate anymore because of the American way or, or right. American ideals, but it's for opportunity, it really um, commercial or financial okay. opportunity. Yeah. They, they, they immigrate for that reason, um, and there's no expectation that, there, there's really no shared understanding of what it would even mean to embrace American ideals or culture or way of life. Right. It, that, what is that today? You know, something else you know? that I think, I think that impacts this discussion in general is I encounter a lot of confusion in talking to other Christians about the distinctive differences between the roles and obligations of the church and individual Christians versus the state. Mm -hmm. So I encounter a lot of Christians, for instance, who think that uh, government policy should mirror mirror Christian charity, Mm -hmm. for example. Um, But when a primary obligation of the state is to wield the sword against the evildoer, that's, that's not the church's responsibility. That's the state's responsibility. And so what you've set up is a, um, an entirely different set of obligations and responsibilities that are ordained by God within the world, mm-hmm. but are, are not shared between the church and the state. And, and, and so what that means is when Christians are operating within their personal or church-related spheres, they may have one set of obligations, but then have a different set of obligations in their in exercising their civil responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the if you know if you're a Christian judge or you're uh, you know you may have to mete out capital punishment against a murderer, um, but it's not incumbent on the church to to take matters into their own hands just because somebody's got to yeah. do it right and so there's a um there's a a sphere of authority that god has given to different entities within the world and so th- there's been this question throughout church history there's been a, one one stream of thought has been that christians really can't serve in government roles right because those two um, institutions are mutually exclusive. Their endeavors are mutually exclusive. And there's another stream of thought that says, no, Christians would make the best leaders 
you know, um, because it's more aligned with what's true and what's right. Mm -hmm. And the truth is good for everyone at every level. Um, and so this podcast series really is sort of an exploration of that conundrum at what level. So on the immigration question, this not to turn this into an immigration podcast episode, it's not the point, but, um, it's only sort of a symptom of the point, the larger point we're, we're exploring here. But there are some Christians who, who, who see the biblical ethic of loving and being hospitable to the stranger and sojourner, for instance, and then want to apply that biblical ethic for the Christian and the church to the state. And so then the state should just sort of welcome all sojourners and, right. and, and take them at, at... And so it it's hard, I think, I think to your point, it's difficult for Christians to sort of think through the separate domains, but, but then also the compatibility of Christians to function right. in the, that governmental role. Right. Or even to have... So in, in the United States, obviously, we've got, we've got input. Right. You know, we can lobby for certain interests. We've got voting interest um, in, in, in what's done, uh, to whatever extent that's still meaningful um, today. But the question is, how do we do that as Christians? Do we vote huh, according to the commands that God's given me as a believer? How do we parse that? You know, yeah. you know what I'm saying? There, yeah. There's a... By the way, if you're interested in a really interesting book on immigration from a Christian point of view, The Bible and Integration by Immigration by Marcus Zender, Z-E-H-N-D-E-R, um, that was actually recommended to me by uh, Dr. Bob Chisholm, uh, who's a member here and uh, a professor at Dallas Seminary. It's mm -hmm. a really great book mm. and, uh, and really surprising in some ways. What's, the, what's his name? Zender, Z-E-H-N-D-E-R, I think. My yeah. Name. Yeah, so, so anyway, if you're, I, we just, the, the subject of immigration has come up a couple of times. I just thought, well, you know, if you're a Christian and want to read up on that, this is a very counterintuitive and, and surprising. And, and, and that's just one, that, yeah. that, that's one issue that we're, we'll have to sort right. of tackle if, if as Christians we're going to engage with the culture. Um, but it's not the only issue. I mean, at certainly. one level, we're talking about what do we do as believers in matters of public policy, right? Um, when and culture development, right? Um, as opposed to um, just having sort of a pietistic, you know, my inner spiritual life and my involvement in my church is all I do kind right. of kind of outlook on our faith, right? There's um so really one of the one of the issues at the center of this discussion was dealt with so well by a guy named Richard uh Niber, Niebuhr, whatever his name is, um, his Christ and Culture. He's got categories that he sort of built. I think this was back in the nineteen fifties when he published this book, but it's become a bit of a standard in Christian context for thinking through the different approaches or perspectives on how the Christian functions within culture or how, how we perceive Christ in relationship to culture. And so there's some of those categories are like, you know, Christ transcends culture, Christ for culture, Christ against culture. You know, those are the, those are the varying responses that we see Christians take in living out their faith in a fallen world, 
I think what we're wrestling with is, okay, if we are really coming to the other side of a Christendom parenthesis, where there was sort of this idea of Christendom, the Christian consensus within the world on, you know, the nature of reality, um, and we're, we're getting to the other side of that, we're much more in a pagan world today than we are in a Christian world, so to speak, in the West, then how do we function as Christians in that pagan world? Do we retreat from the world? Do we react against the world? Do we, do we privatize our faith? Do we privatize our faith? Do we, um, uh, do we attempt to convert the world? Uh, or do we redeem the culture as it exists? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Do we create a, a parallel culture that's strictly Christian but outside the culture? Those are all responses and reactions that Christians have in a post-Christian world that I think are worth exploring. Um, I, I think we should just let Kyle answer all these questions when he returns. <laughs> I think that's a good idea. Yeah. He's just had a baby, so he's likely to have had the most sleep of any of us. Yes, uh, no doubt. So he should... Can we... Um... <clears throat> Can we go back and entertain the buffet idea that Van had earlier? <laughs> yeah. I'm saying yeah. this. Yeah. If you get people eating, everything will just work out right. <laughs> <laughs> Keep them fed. Yeah. Well, so we're, this this is going to be a, um, a wide-ranging series, as you can probably tell if you're listening. But, but we do hope that by the end of this, we're better equipped to think through how we as Christians engage in the public sphere and what it would mean to apply our Christian ethic of the kingdom to the world that we're living in today. And so, uh, with that in mind, be in prayer for us <laughs> as we embark on that, that uh, intellectual journey. So, we'll see you in the next one. This has been a Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can join the conversation by emailing us at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.